Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's going on, you good humans? Welcome to guest episode 105 of Good Humans Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. You're a bloody good human. I appreciate you. If it's your first time here today, do me a huge favor. Go on your phone, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button. Go back and check out some of the other episodes we have because I'm sure you'll be inspired by some of our guests. Leave us a five-star rating if you enjoy it. And yeah, please tell just one friend about this episode if you enjoy it. A big thank you as well to our sponsors, Drink Rapper. These guys are the biggest legends ever. They are a brain drink. They use these amazing formula that they've done with neuroscientists to create a product that is beneficial for our brain, both short-term performance and long-term brain health. They have a variety of products and they just dropped a brand new thing called the Brain Shot and it's for protection of our brain. You can head over to their website, drinkrapid.com, use the code GOODHUMAN and you get a huge 25% off all of their products. I highly encourage you to check this stuff out if you're taking your health seriously, which I think you should. Uh, yeah, you're going to really enjoy this stuff. So head over to their website, drinkarepper.com, or if you're in Woolies or Coles, look in the cold drink section for the little purple bottle and you'll see the Drink Rapper stuff. So go check them out. Would absolutely love that. Also, if you are enjoying this podcast and you like what I do with the Good Human Factory mental health workshops, you can find out on the website, thegoodhumanfactory.com, more about those workshops. I speak to high school students. I also speak to corporate groups, and we've had some amazing feedback recently that my workshop is, yeah, having some really big benefits. So if you want to take care of your staff or your community's mental health, your school community, reach out through the website. And if you want to support the merchandise on the website, it's a great way to spread positivity around your community. Use the code podcast on the goodhumanfactory.com merch and you get a big 25% off. All right, today's episode, Michelle Mitchell. This lady is incredible. The first ever gold medalist in the Olympics on Good Humans podcast. And yeah, I love getting to know this part of her story. So Michelle, I've met for the last oh, six, seven, eight years through Surfing Australia. She's a wellness and well-being coordinator and helps athletes transition from their career in surfing into their next chapter. She's been monumental in the Good Human Factory. She's had a huge impact on my life and it was so special getting to hear about her story and yeah, the gold medal that she won, her journey with hockey, how she did it her own way, how she yeah navigated through what was an interesting career with many injuries and having to, yeah, just pull the pin before the Australian Olympics in Sydney. Just a really interesting story. And I loved getting to hear all about it. She also speaks about the Seas Today um, Women's Surfing Festival on in June. I'm going to leave some stuff to that in the show notes. You can listen to that at the very end of this chat. Um, if you want to come be part of the surfing community, be exposed to some amazing workshops and people and a free all ages, all community event at Kingscliff in June. You can find more about that in the show notes. So let's jump into the chat. Welcome to Good Humans Podcast, Michelle Mitchell. How you going, Michelle? Yeah, really good. Really nice to see you. I know. It's great to see you. Um, bit of context. So you were my careers advisor, transition coach, I guess, at Surfing Australia. How would you describe your role at Surfing Australia now? Uh, well, it's called uh, Wellbeing and Engagement Lead. So basically it's anything out of the water. I say I'm like a coach in career education and personal development, but really I'm just about connecting athletes with what matter what matters in order to thrive. Amazing. Well, we're going to catch up to the whole part of your story. You're an Olympian. You've had such a unique journey up until doing the work you do now, you've been massive, massive um, in my career, especially with the Good Human Factory and transitioning mm. out of surfing. So we will catch up to there, but we're going to get back to the start of your story first. But I do open Good Humans podcast with two little segments. The first one I showed you real quickly, Drink a Rapper is our sponsor of this podcast. They're a brain function drink. Um, you'll really like this being an athlete. We like to put good stuff in our body. Um the guys from a rapper basically discovered, well, not discovered, but were working for energy drink companies v Red Bull. 
and kept seeing kids walking out of service stations going like, what are we doing? We're poisoning all these people. Like mm. it's so bad for you. Maybe we can make an energy drink that is beneficial for us, physiology, uh, for our physiology and um, yeah, for our short-term brain health, but also long-term, no, short-term brain performance, long-term brain health. Developed by neuroscientists, over $5 million of clinical studies to prove their product works, which is amazing. And yeah, the only um, product in the Southern Hemisphere that's actually done the clinical studies to prove their product has benefits for our brain. So we're going to shake them up. Little awesome. black currant juice. So the ones we've got in our hand are the performance. There's a fizzy one on the table if you get thirsty throughout. Try not to get anything. It's pretty purple, but cheers. Brain drink. I love that. Mm. And it's for performance, so really good for athletes too, it's, right? They've done a lot of stuff with the All Blacks. They've done a lot of stuff with a lot of athletes. So, yeah, they're about to change the game. I'll, ta- I'll leave you a case to take home. But love that. that's a wrap. But thanks to them for sponsoring the pod. The other question I always open Good Humans podcast with is, what are you grateful for right now today? Oh, well, I just had a really deep conversation with a friend and I think I, what what really came about for me before I walked in this door is that I'm really grateful um, for the friendship group um, that I have and, and probably the people that I've met in the surf community and in the sporting community, um, in particular athletes and the connections that I've made. So I would say the people that are in my life right now Amazing. I love that. We're very lucky here on the Gold Coast. The community is amazing. The surfing community is so tight knit and now mm-hmm. you've really morphed yourself into the middle of it and care so much about myself and all of the athletes. So it's a great gratitude to kick off with. Yeah, so. thank you. All right. Now's the time to get to know your story. Like I said, we have had a relationship for probably the last eight years. Yeah, seven, Six, I seven think. Years. Yeah, seven years. And I know a tiny bit about your backstory, but yeah. I'm excited to get to know a bit more about it today. So let's go back to the start. Where were you born? What was life like as a kid? Let's call up until high school. What dynamics? What do I need to know about you that shaped Michelle to be the young lady that became an Olympian? Yeah, good question. Um, well, I grew up at Redhead Beach um, and I was really lucky to be part of a community. I was probably fairly raw as a child. Um, spent most of my days down on the beach, um, either surfing or lying on the beach. And from a very young age, I was highly competitive. Um, so I competed in every sport, but the sport that I was really connected with was hockey. Um, my mum and my sisters played hockey, um, but my mum actually made me play netball until I was 12. And it was when I was nine years of age, um, she was telling me to, that, you know, I had to go over to a netball match and everyone was playing hockey and I'm like, no, mum, I actually I actually want to play hockey. And she's like, no, you need to go and play. And I, I got really stubborn and I was like, no, I'm not going over there. Netball is not a sport <laughs> and, it, and particularly a sport that I didn't want to play. Um, so my mum actually gave in and probably by the age of 11 I started telling teachers that um, when they would ask me what my ambitions were in a classroom, I actually told them that, it didn't matter about the classroom. I was actually going to go to the Olympics one day and get a gold medal. And um, as I got older, I started telling them that I was going to bring the gold medal back to them um, to to prove to them that I could actually do it. So from a really young age, I was all, all about winning. Um, but I also really lacked an inner um, lack of confidence of, as well. And I always try and think about where that came from. Um, but I think that's kind of um, a little bit of a trait about being high achieving as well, that you always doubt yourself or you always want to be better. Um, you know, I was a freckle-faced girl from Redhead Beach and um, as a young 14-year-old, you know, I was probably judged on having those freckles, you know, so maybe that's where the low self-esteem came from. Um, and then you create this dialogue in your mind of, you know, where that takes you. But I think having sport um, within the school system for me was really key to building up um, where I am today. Yeah, it's it's so cool to hear you reflect back on it. Why do you think you didn't look at netball as a sport and you were drawn to hockey? Because I feel like, I don't know, this is just obviously very biased from my side. My sisters all played netball. Netball was kind of the thing. Yeah. Why hockey, not um, netball? I really struggled with the small court. In, in netball and you're really, yeah, you're really restricted where you could go. So I'd finish a netball game and be like, oh, 
I don't really feel like I've achieved anything. Um, I had a parent in the team that had two daughters, so they got the best position. So I got stuck. I was only talking to someone the other day. I got stuck in the wing attack position. And I was like, oh, no, I want to score goals because when I play hockey in the backyard with my neighbourhood, I'm the goal scorer. Um, and whenever I – I had a hockey stick in my hand from the age of three, so okay. I was – I would get our whole community in Redhead to come to my house and I would have hockey tournaments at my house in the backyard. It was kind of that or cricket. Yeah, wow. um, and then uh, this dialogue sort of – Later on in life, when I had my own children, my daughter came home and said, I'm playing netball. And I'm like, that is not a sport. We, we need to have a conversation. And then I had all these parents um, sort of ringing me going, oh, you, Bella really wants to play netball, but my daughter's coming home saying you don't like netball. So um, then I had this whole dialogue around netball parents and I, it, it's been a history piece. Um, and even when I went to the Commonwealth Games, um, I remember one of the the captain of the netball team at the Commonwealth Games came up to me and she's like, you know, you girls have won your gold medal, but we've actually got to play ours tomorrow. And we're like, oh, it doesn't matter. Netball's not a sport anyway. So there's just been this continuation of um, Michelle Mitchell and netball. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Like it's so cool that you can reflect on there was like that pivotal moment just from a parent not putting you in the positions because they wanted their daughter. Like it's crazy that the whole like story that you've created of netball in your whole life just because of that one moment like and it's mm. it's important i think for parents listening to realize like be careful the way that you yeah talk about certain things with your kids because that's the way that they're going to yeah see it as well yes yes and i've definitely had kids come up come over to my house and said yeah my mum says that you don't like netball <laughs> um so i've really had to dig myself out of those holes uh, so let's talk about high school for you you're now big on values. That's um, a massive thing that I've learned from you, connecting with your values and understanding them. What were your values going through high school and where did you see finishing high school, your life going? Oh, look, it's um, if I look back on high school and my athlete journey, I think the problem was I didn't have values. Um, I think historically we've talked about goals all the time and I think we still drum into um, humans about we've got to have goals but actually what the values are the process piece right so I actually went through high school and I think my identity came from me being the best I can be in sport and so I was really recognized within high school but when I got into um, social set- settings with my peers which wasn't often because I was always away at mm-hmm. um, sporting events I really struggled with um trying to fit in um, and and I really probably that probably went into my athletic career as well. So if I crossed that white line and I was on the hockey field, I knew what I wanted to do and that was win and that was at all costs. But if I actually look back now through um, going through high school and my three Olymp- Olympic campaigns with my athletic career, um, I can actually say, one, I won a gold medal completely messed up. So I talk about values um, when you move away from your values around your emotions and behaviour. And you can have all these emotions and then behaviours play out. And I really probably sat for 15 years in a flutter of emotion and behaviour and didn't actually know how to get out of that. So if I reflect back on high school, I would say that, it was about winning in sport to prove my identity, but also just surviving high school. Mm, yeah, I can relate so much to that. And I know you know my story quite well, how connecting with yourself and Jason really helped me understand my values a bit better. And I like that part, how you brought up that a lot of people have goals, but not too many of us have values. And it's like, if you reach your goal without having values along the way, it's going to be unfulfilling uh, anyway. And you see that happen so often with athletes. They get that oh, I got here, but now what? And it's like a goal is like something that can happen, but you're not going to enjoy the process if you don't have solid values along the way and enjoy what you're actually trying to achieve. Yeah, yeah. And I think that played out in my athletic career where there was times where I was really heightened with emotions and really crazy behaviours presented itself 
So I kind of missed that process because all I was thinking was, I've just got to keep doing this till I get the gold medal. Mm. But there was no other thinking around that, um, which is, I look back now with goals, it's, it's, it's not very often now I will look five to 10 years ahead because I just think, how do we roll out of bed every day and show up as a really good human mm. and, and, and then connect in with my values around that? Yeah, I love that. And I think that relates a lot to what Jace Patchell, both of our great friend, talks about. You can never get west, but you can always head west. And it's like mm. by having values, it's like walking in the right direction of your compass. And it doesn't matter where you end up. You're already walking in a direction of a far better life. Whereas when you don't have values, it's kind of like you're walking in any direction trying to find yeah, what feels right. Let's talk about post high school for you. You went to three Olympics. That's a 12 year period of life. Plus I'm guessing the period prior to build up the skills to be able to, um, yeah, be Jillaroo. Is it hockey roo? Hockey roo. Yeah. Hockey roo. What's Jillaroo? The soccer girls. Yeah. No, Matilda's is soccer. Jillaroo is probably the netballers. Okay. So let's talk about hockey. Where does, post-school head for you when you're trying to train to be an Olympian, full-time hockey, are you juggling work? This is a little while ago, so I'm mm. guessing like sport and funding is in a, probably a different place than it is today. Yeah, what was that next period? Let's talk up until you're 30 with your hockey career. Yeah, okay, so really interesting. I got to do my high school certificate for year 12 and my mum was really adamant that I would do year 12 and finish school. Me too. Fail or not. Um, and then I basically left school and um, went to the Australian Institute of Sport um, for hockey, which is based in Perth. So I spent 11 years in Perth and obviously did three Olympic campaigns. All those three Olympic campaigns look really different. So the first one I missed out on the team. I was really fortunate enough that the Seoul team in 1988 won a gold medal um, and they were still drunk and hung over when um, three caps came up to play against Great Britain. So they chose all of us random extras that couldn't make the team. So I actually played my first international um, game on the eve of my 17th birthday, um, which was really young in, in, you know, in world hockey for that. And so that was the start of my, my journey. And then I went for the team at Barcelona and, um, I actually didn't make the team. I got really bitter very quickly. I got really resentful, so much so when that team went off to Barcelona. Um, we had a party in Perth with the people that didn't go to celebrate that the team didn't win, which wow. at that moment I think we all realised that we were all in a, a big pot of grief together, but it was a really unhealthy way to approach being part of a team Mm. so it was after Barcelona that I really had to think about you know why I was here and and what my dream was so quickly when you say you made the team so with those two you're part of the the squad but then don't get to travel and be part of the I don't know how many. I'm yeah, guess, so like there's 10 a, or 12 on the team. Yeah, squad of 24 yeah. and they pick 16 to go and then they pick a couple of shadows and I didn't even get shadow and I'm like. So you're in those eight twice to not actually get to go to the games. But. Yeah, yeah. So and then I obviously played those caps thinking I'm going to be in the mix but, you know, I was 21. I was still raw or actually mm. I wasn't even 21. I think I was 19. Yeah, at, at the time. Um, so... I was really devastated, so I really had to reset. But then obviously Rick Charlesworth came in to the fold, which Rick Charlesworth is a bit of an icon in sport. He was a doctor, politician. He played test cricket. Uh, He went to five Olympic Games, um, four hockey. So he's kind of a legend. And it was Sharon Buchanan, the former captain in in, um, Seoul, that sort of said um, we need to get Rick Charlesworth into the mould. So I was really lucky um to come in to the squad going into Atlanta in 1996 and uh we were undefeated in so many games so we actually became the and still hold that record today to be the greatest um women's team in in world history as the most successful in Australia but not only in Australia but we still sit in the top 10 in the world for winning the most consistent games so yeah. what what changed for you from um 
Oh, what'd you say? The second one that you didn't get to go? Atlanta. No, so I didn't get to go to Barcelona, Barcelona. in 92. What, what, yeah, what changed for you personally, do you believe, that think, allowed you to step up to be part of you in the squad for Atlanta? Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think Rick Charlesworth coming into the mould, um, he decided that he wanted to change the game to be a lot quicker. Um, I fitted into that because I still claim that I can beat Nova Paris over the first 40 metres of a 100-metre sprint, um, which is why I was a striker and I had a, a gift for, for goal scoring as well. So Rick came in and he no- he noticed my talent um, and immediately put me in the squad and team. Um, I think he found it really difficult to – he worked out pretty quickly that I probably wasn't coachable, but he would probably learn how to manage me. And he worked out pretty quickly that the more honest he was with me, and, and sometimes that was brutal – that he would get the best out of me. So he was really good at reading the state of the play of the individual. So then I went on to Atlanta um, and won a gold medal. Let's talk about, you just mentioned that you're uncoachable. Explain Mm. that to me. Um, So I was pretty stubborn. I was pretty raw. I was a girl from Newcastle, from Redhead Beach, a little community town that I grew up in. Um, I probably was really lucky. I was naturally gifted with skill and I had a freakish talent to score goals and play big games. Um, He knew that, but it was how he was going to manage me. So one day he sort of said to me, why are you practising this? Because you're already good at it. And I'm like, well, that's why I'm good at it. And he's Mm -hmm. like, well, you should practise these things you're not good at. And I'm like, no, because this other girl is so good at that and you're going to put her in that position anyway. So why would I do that when I can be a complete freak at this? Mm. And he'd sort of just shake his head at me um, and then he'd probably hand me to the striker coach because um, he, he once did say that um, myself and Jackie Pereira, who was the greatest striker of all time, um, in my opinion, in, in her era, um, weren't coachable. And And obviously when we would do long runs around the bridges in Perth, which was... Everyone knew how brutal that was. It was 10Ks. It was always the strikers at the back complaining. And that was me because we were sprinters and we're like, why do we have to run 10Ks? You know, that's for the midfielders and Mm. defenders. So we were always challenging the status quo with him, um, but he was very good at managing us. Um, So then I obviously went on to Atlanta. Let's talk about Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta was... um, it was amazing. I was really lucky. I don't have both my parents now, so I remember winning the gold medal. Um, Talk me through the gold medal match. Oh, wow. So I reckon nine minutes into the gold medal match, we are playing Korea. Um, my whole life I'd trained for this dream. Nine minutes into the match, I hit the zone. It's got goosebumps. Yeah, like- so people talk about the zone. Mm. And how do I explain the zone? The only way I can do it is everything I had ever trained for because we had this real philosophy in our game, you train the way you play. Um, and I even say it to the surface now, just yeah. train the way you play and then on, on competition day you will be amazing. Yeah. So basically what happened, everything in that moment that I trained for for eight years came together um, and I literally just turned it on and just Every pass that I made, every press that I made, every shot that I had, there was a really good outcome to it. Wow. Um, and then obviously, um, you know, we won We won the game 3-1. I felt I set up two of those goals with our players. Um, so to be sitting on that dais after winning the gold medal and, and have 15,000 people in the crowd and, and look straight ahead and see both my parents in the crowd was probably the highlight of my gold medal. Wow. So when you talk about gratitude, um, that is probably one thing I'll always value and is in my heart and I can see it every single day because um, people often say, you know, oh, where do you keep the medal? And and it's like, oh, the, the medal in my head is seeing my parents after I won the gold medal to know what they gave up and sacrificed. They sold their boats for me to fund where I got to. Um, you know, they would have remortgaged the house if they had to for me to fulfil my dream. So in that moment, it was probably the first time as an athlete, because I feel as athletes, 
we're quite selfish and it's all about us. Mm. But I felt in that moment standing on the dais and looking at them, I'm like, I had this immense feeling of gratitude for the people that had helped me get there. And that was probably the first time in 24 years that that actually occurred. Wow. Do you feel like when that gold medal went around your neck, you mentioned throughout your teen years, you felt like a bit of insecurity about being enough and having to succeed in sport to prove your identity. Do you feel like that gold medal around your neck was like that breath of fresh air? You hear quite often that gold medal is a feeling of relief more so than excitement. What was it for you? I think I had two things. I was really relieved and I was really excited. I actually had um, I, I had been the person that got selected to do the drug test afterwards. So behind that dais was my um, shadower. Um, I'd been selected to do the drug test. So I was really excited <laughs> and really relieved. But I was also mindful yeah. that as soon as I get off this dais, I've got to go and try and go and pee. And if I test negative, um, then the whole team would be stripped to their medals. If and, it's positive. Yeah, positive, sorry, yeah. yeah. Uh, and you you just have that in your mind. It's like, <laughs> oh, what what um, what drinks did I have in yeah. the village oh. or what food? And contamination is one of the number one things that wow. get picked up with athletes, you know. They can be having a drink, but if that cup is contaminated, they could actually have a positive test. So it's amazing what goes on in your head. So there was relief, um, but also a bit of, oh, my God, I'm, I'm why me? <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, so I everyone after the dais and we were going up to Channel 9 um, to be live on air and there's everyone sitting in the bus going, somebody send in some alcohol to her so she can pee because I was so nervous <laughs> about peeing. So, um, yeah, there was lots of emotions going on in in that moment yeah. um, but we certainly had a really big party that night. But I think when you wake up from that, um after winning a gold medal and what I was talking about early, what set in for me was this whole insecurity piece around who I was again and that flutter of emotion and behaviour really came back into my life because it's like, wow, I've done this, but now I'm I'm just back to living and I call it the real world. And mm, You've reached that pinnacle and now it's like, am I ever going to get this again? Yeah. And that's what happens when we don't have our values. You reach the goal with no values to support that goal and then it comes crumbling down. Like gold medal depression is a big thing. Yeah. And I would say um, after Atlanta I went and I was the first Australian to ever go and play in Holland. I went and played for a club in Holland called Harkasay, HGC, and um, I was playing with some of the greatest players in the world. Like when you go to a club match in Holland, you know, it's the num it's the second biggest sport in their country, wow. hockey behind soccer. So I went there and I went and played for a year and a season. I had a knee problem and, and Rick Charlesworth rang me and said, it's time to get on the plane and get your butt back here because I've got to train for Sydney. And I was like, oh. I'm just kind of learning about myself over here and I'm not really sure I want to come back because I kind of thought I might retire after mm. Atlanta. I was riddled with knee injuries. I'd had so many knee operations. Um, anyway, I decided to get on that plane and, and come back to Australia. But I would say for two years leading into Sydney, I really was still on that roller coaster of emotion and behaviour Life was just so, I had so many ups and downs and probably in that era we never really talked about those things. Um, you know, there's so many support mechanisms for athletes now like the Mental Health Referral Network, the Career Practitioner Referral Network. You can get referred to anyone. There's people like wellbeing experts that can support the athlete out mm. of the water. We didn't have that. We had a career advisor but we would probably just walk into her office and offload all of our shit and then walk out and she'd be like, okay, I've got to make sense of that in the career sense. Um, but probably Sydney is the big one for me. Um, right up to the point um, in going into home Olympics and knowing that we would win a gold medal, we, we were world's best. And that was really exciting. But for me, I was literally carrying one leg. And um, it was, we had a rehearsal to the Sydney Olympics. 
um, where we had a tournament and, and we just had to rehearse it like it was an Olympic Games. So they would do security tags as we went in the gate and went out of the gate. And um, I'd been, I think I was coming back from a knee surgery and I was like, oh, this is actually not going to get better. And I made a really bad decision of changing stick sponsors and shoe sponsors. And all of a sudden, everything just started falling apart. And my knee, the shoes that I was wearing were not good shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and and when you talk about values, I had no values to make those decisions even around what sponsors to have, what brand I want to represent. I had no idea. Mm. Um, so when we went into this mock um, Olympic setup, I was like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not going to be able to play in this Olympics. My knee keeps giving away and I've got, I've got 15 other athletes and I remember ringing Rick and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. And he's like, you just need to be ready for the final. I'm like, oh, my God, I've got, I've got 15 other athletes to consider. Um, and so uh, we had a psychologist, Corinne Reid, who was quite instrumental with our group and, and it was quite ahead of time to have a, mm. a psychologist within your team. Um, so I had a, I organised to have a meeting with her after this mock tournament and um, I said to her, I need to withdraw. Um, I, I can't go on one leg and I've got teammates and um, so I need to actually withdraw from selection. So my retirement was... Um, forced by injury. Forced by injury and, and that was the end. Um which was the beginning of craziness. Let's talk about craziness. So finishing being an athlete, still kind of struggling with your values, struggling with some injuries. You've got a gold medal to your name, but not not taken away from hockey, but being in a big team sport, it's a little bit different, I guess, to winning a gold medal in an individual sport mm. where you might get the endorsements, you might get that follow-on a little bit from it. Yeah. What did you think your life was going to be like post-hockey when you started having to deal with these injuries and you started having to go, all right, there's a lot more life to live? What What did you think it was going to look like and what was, yeah, this craziness you speak of? Yeah, so um, I'd heard about transition in the athlete world as going through the athlete journey. So I was someone that was really proactive in the space of trying to learn skills or study. So I went to uni and did social work. I learnt nothing in the nine years that I went there. I didn't even graduate um, and we had no support. If you couldn't turn up to an exam, it was fail. Um, I worked with, I was really uh, interested in addiction. Uh, I worked with heroin addicts um, where I worked with a a doctor called Dr George O'Neill who was bringing naltrexone in, which they used for alcoholics in the 70s. They were using it with heroin addicts. I was really always trying to learn. I worked with Cerebral Palsy Association, looking after kids with cerebral palsy. So I had a high level of care. And I'm like, if I do all these things with hockey when I transition, I'm going to be like the role model. Mm. Um, What happened when I withdrew from the team or the squad in Sydney is then my mother made a phone call to me and told me she had six months to live um, and she had gallbladder cancer. So that was a second big thing Mm. that happened to me. And uh, literally after I withdrew, um, I started getting these really unfamiliar feelings that I felt really comfortable with and um, like short of breath. and felt really comfortable or uncomfortable? Uncomfortable, yeah. Yeah. And I would start sort of panicking and then I would run off to a toilet and I was like, oh, what's, what's going on here? And, and they, they, these waves of emotions just kept coming towards me and I was like, oh, I just won't tell anyone about that and I'll just pretend they're not happening and I'll just tell myself how amazing I am and hopefully um, they'll go away. But actually what followed from, so when the team went to Sydney and competed, I went to Bali and sat under an umbrella every day um, with my now husband um, he was my partner at the time. We played Scrabble every day and I think I drank cocktails from midday onwards. Um, and then I decided to return to Australia on the gold medal match and I decided this time I was going to have a party to celebrate these girls winning the gold medal. So I got all the hockey community to come to my house. Um, 
But what followed afterwards was uh, I think it was nine months post um, the Olympic gold medal. They won another gold medal um, that I, my mum had passed. And so I moved back from Perth to Sydney to save my sister and my father um, because I knew that they had done all the hard yards with with my mother and, and her death. Um, but what actually followed was I was curled up in a ball um, in Sydney um, with chronic anxiety. Wow. And I had a real fear of leaving the house. And at that moment, um, I think I was curled up in a ball for half a day with no one in the house. And I was like, what is going on? I actually made a phone call um, to our our hockey doctor and I said, oh, I think I'm I think I'm really unwell and I need some help. Um, and she said, can you drive to me? Um, she was in East Sydney and, and really lucky that um, she, I said to her, I need to see the best psychologist, typical in we my need, world. Need I want yeah. the best mm-hmm. um, and I, I want to get better and I'm going to attack this like an athlete. And I went home and I said to Ewan, who's my husband now, look, I'm really unwell. Um, I don't think I'm going to get better quickly but you can leave. You just pack your bags and leave because I, I need to focus on this. And it kind of came back to that. This late 20s? Yeah, 20, 29. My age. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a thing they say if you're not really settled by 30 that these things can present themselves or have that understanding of yourself. Mm. Um, there's a whole theory and research around that. Um, but for me, I worked out really quickly with the psychologist that um, I had chronic anxiety. Um, At times it was debilitating. Um, So even when I was going to the psychologist um, and I had to go across the Harbour Bridge, I'm like, if I get in traffic, I could actually jump out of this car because I can't sit in the car with myself. And if I look back now, why did that occur? It's because I didn't know who I was as a human. Mm which is probably why I ended up in the work that I am with the high level of care that I had for people. Um, but I, I didn't know who I was as a person. I never as an athlete really had to do anything hard except my sport. I had all these people around me doing it for me. I was the youngest of four children. I was wrapped in cotton wool as that fourth child. So I actually transitioned into a world that I went, I don't know how to do life on my own and being comfortable with that. Mm, It's like when so many athletes, I feel like that 20 to 30 is almost the athlete age. And it's like the way that I feel like your story goes very similar to mine. I feel like I was lucky. I kind of caught it a bit earlier. Mm. But you go through the same that most people go through in the 17 to 20 period in your 27 to 30 period which then can build on that anxiety because you feel mm. guilty that, oh, I, like my friends have all got this going for them and they've built this, but I spent all my time doing my sport, which is great. Everyone loved mm. me for it, but now who am I? So how do you understand what your values were? What did your psychologist talk to you about and what was that next period through your 30s to understand who Michelle Mitchell is? Yeah, I think the values were a really big piece. I mean, we talked. I talked a lot of things with the psychologists around who I was as a child. So I actually did have to go back, which um, I kind of look at psychology now and I go, how much do we have to go back? Like, can't we just start here? And I guess that's why positive psychology was was created. But for me, I really had to go back. Um, and I did this form of therapy where I had to talk to my mother in the chair who wasn't there and have conversations with her for me to start understanding why these things were playing out. But it also came back to the story that I was telling you earlier on. You were asking about my childhood. I probably had really um, low self-esteem in my childhood because I was always wanting to achieve. So I was really, um, that internal dialogue for me was always quite negative. Mm. And so I would always find the negative in things. It's like Um, your internal life is, if I'm winning, this is like good Michelle Mitchell. Yeah. If I'm not winning something, yeah. who am I? And when yeah. you pull away from being a professional athlete, yeah, it's it's a different version of winning once you've joined the real world. Yeah. And I think historically in sport with coaching, it 
in my era, it was about the coach telling us how it had to be or the support staff. There was no athlete voice. Mm. So I just always went along with it and it's probably why I had the conflict with Rick at times because I'm like, no, I don't want to do what you're telling me to Mm. do. But that athlete voice was never respected or regarded where I feel in today the athlete gets a voice and we're really driving it with athletes. Um, So in that 12-year period, I I rarely had to make decisions or had a voice, which is why this flutter of emotion and behaviour constantly showed up for me because I was very, by the time I went to communicate it, the way that it came out was just so ugly. Mm. And I feel sorry for some of those people that were on the receiving end of that. So I really had to go back and look at that. And it was around where I started learning about values. And it's probably in the work that I'm doing now that I've learned more about values with some of the people that I've worked with. But I think it was, what are my values? So how do I want to roll out of bed every day? What's important? So what's important to me and and where I wanted to go and who are those people? I was probably a passenger in my own journey. And so we talk to athletes today, go, hang on, you're the driver of the bus. So put yourself in that bus. What people do you need in the back of the bus? And what people do you actually need to offload? Mm. And what people do you need to put in your bus? I feel with those three things, they really helped me with recovering, with understanding who I was as a human and being comfortable with that. But also being comfortable with the emotions that showed up like crying, anger, sadness. Um, I had all these emotions where we got told that if you were stressed or you were crying, you couldn't perform. Mm. where today it's like if an athlete comes to me and they're crying, I'm like, cry. It's so good for you. Mm. But you can still go out and compete in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. You'll be amazing. And I I talk to surfers about putting the emotion on your shoulder. So if you're on a wave and you're feeling really anxious or you're self-doubting yourself, it's like, oh, I'm going to put self-doubt on my shoulder And I'm going to say, hello, self-doubt, we're about to go on a wave. Are you ready for this? Mm. So it's almost like having a relationship with these emotions that we've been told historically aren't, we can't succeed with them. But I am a living product that you can win a gold medal completely messed up. (laughs) Mm. Yeah, I love to say that. It's something that Barton Lynch taught me quite a bit when I was doing some coaching with him in my late teen years and it's something that stuck with me, one of those little lessons. He said, you're going to win when you feel your absolute best, you're going to lose when you feel your absolute best and you're going to win when you feel your absolute worst and you're going to lose when you feel your absolute worst. There's yeah. no point in going into it going, oh, I feel average, I'm going to do bad. It's like, no, you, so many times people win and do well in um, events and competitions when they're injured because yeah. it takes away that expectation. Yeah. We've been talking about values quite a bit. I want to go into them real quickly, just a little bit deeper. You do do a lot of work now. You teach people about values. Mm. What are values and what are your values? Okay, so values, I believe, are things that you want to stand for as a human, Mm. quite simply. So, for example, when I rolled out of bed today, it's like, okay, I connect with how I'm feeling, but actually how do I want to show up for Cooper And for other meetings that I've got today um, to really sort of lean into that. Um, So it's really how our behaviours play out on a daily basis and how we show up. Mm -hmm. Um, What are my values? My values, my number one one, which is never changes, is respect. Um, Always respect the people that you're talking with, engaging with at all times. Um, Patience. I've got a really fast brain. For some people that I work with, that gets pretty overwhelming pretty quickly. So I've really got to be patient with people that I work with um, or I'm very outcome-driven, so I've got to be really patient on that. When I'm injured, which I've had some major surgery 18 months ago, I really had to sit in that space of being patient. Hmm. Um, Connection to community is really important. I need people around me to feel healthy and, and survive and thrive. Uh, gratitude, 
always at the end of the day. Um, and I think you have brought that to me with the Good Human Factory mm-hmm. with how you really show up around that gratitude piece. It, it's And it's really influenced me with having that um, as a value um, and integrity. Mm. If, if everything that I'm doing, am I doing it with integrity? Um, and I think the other one I've always had like respect is compassion Um, because as athletes we are selfish humans. We have to be selfish because we want to be successful, but that comes at a cost to the other people that are around us. So I really try to wear other people's shoes now and, and understand where they're coming from when they are perhaps expressing something to me that I don't understand Beautiful. I love every single one of them and you <laughs> truly live up to all of them. I've been close to you for quite some time now. I mean, we have grown apart obviously the last yeah. year because I've stepped out of surfing, yeah. but I want to jump into this surfing chapter now. Where did Surfing Australia come about? Your position with Surfing Australia? Um, and yeah, what does it mean to you to get to work? And, and maybe let's talk about the first time I came into your orbit and wow. what um what you can remember. I can remember really clearly this one phone call that we had and I remember I was sitting in the car at McDonald's at Brookvale. I don't know why I remember that yeah, for some reason. Wow. And I was in the car with someone and we had a chat just about the vision for the Good Human Factor and you've always been very excited because I've known you since it was just an idea Yeah, and you've been there with every step of the way and it's really cool to get to have you on the podcast, see where it's come because you've seen <laughs> yeah. it from like this little idea to now showing you oh. my boxes of merch to the podcast to all the workshops. Um, yeah, let's talk about how Surfing Australia came apart and then maybe your, um, mm. yeah, your relationship with me, what that's been like for you from your side. Yeah, so um, I came to Surfing Australia, Kim Crane, um, who was the former high performance director I'd had three years at the Gold Coast Suns as the player development manager um, and I had left the Suns after three years. I was probably a little bit burnt out because it was seven days a week. It was pretty brutal. Were you there when Dan Gorringe was there? No. Were they when they just started? No, Sorry. no, no. Um, and I decided to have a few months off because I, I felt I really needed to thaw out from that experience um, because it consumed a lot of my life. And I got a phone call from Kim Crane, I think, in the second month of having a break. And she's like, hey, Surfing Australia is now an Olympic sport. They're having a, um, an athlete wellbeing engagement person. You'd be great. Are you interested? I'm like, oh, I'm so interested. Like, grew up on Redhead Beach, grew up with a whole bunch of surfers. You know, uh, you know, Mark Richards, you know, was my neighbour, or not physically, but in, this, in the same um, Rude, city. Yeah. yeah. So... I started there half a day a week um, and it just, I felt like I was at home because I'd grown up in this culture um, and it was really interesting because people would come up to me and be like, oh, you know, you're new to surfing and I'm like, well, not really because I grew up with a whole bunch of surfers. I hung out with surfers. Mm. Um, my brother was a surfer so I'm like, okay, yep, all right, we won't have that conversation. Mm. Yep, you'll get to know my story and you'll understand that. I know a little bit about surfing. Um, so surfing was really special to any other sport that I'd worked in. The The community and the culture within surfing was, I don't know, I just found the people so much more connected with earth and, and, and relationships. So I was just like, wow, I think I've found my sport. And then um, obviously... I was working with the psychologist there, Jason Patchell, and Kim had mentioned this Cooper Chapman <laughs> who's in Sydney um, and he would Sydney be a really time. good person to connect with. Um, we feel like he needs some support at the moment. And there was another athlete, Dion Atkinson. I just lost my sponsor. Me and yeah. Dion had both just lost our sponsors. Yes, yes. So I got this, I think I rang Dion Atkinson. He didn't return my call and I'm like, he's just not ready or... You know, and then I'm like, God, I've got to tell these surfers, you know, I'm here to support them. This is going to be like rocket science mm-hmm. to them because they've never had that support. And um, I remember we, uh, I was working for another company and you said you were in Sydney. And I'm like, well, I, I'm in Sydney, so let's go to a cafe. And I think we met in North Sydney. Um, yeah. Do you remember that? No, I can't. 
Oh, I've got, and, my memory is average, but. And um, I showed up and we, we met at a coffee shop and I was just like, oh, you know, how are you? Tell me about your story. And you just went, woo, you were like, yeah, I've lost my sponsor and surfing Australia and you just had all this emotion pouring out of you and I'm like, oh, you poor bugger, you've literally had no support. You've literally navigated this whole journey on your own and I think I even Googled you because I always like to know a little bit about my athletes. And I was like, this guy is like, he can make it, you know. Mm. Um, so, but, but I knew when I met you, I'm like, this guy's going to do something special, but he just needs to get through his grief first. Mm. But yeah, I don't feel, yeah. Look, it's great to hear your perspective mm. on that because I at the time I didn't feel like I was grieving, but mm. I definitely reflecting probably felt like the world was quite against me and I'd lost my sponsor. Yeah. yeah. Oh, like, yeah, there's Surfing Australia don't have the support in Sydney instead of, right. like, I didn't have the growth mindset. I was like, why that? Whereas I could have moved to the Goldie earlier and trained at the centre. Yes. I could have, yeah, been more active in finding sponsorship, but I chose that sort of fixed mindset rather than that growth mindset. And I think you were, you and Jason were so instrumental in me understanding that there's more to me as a human but then also to life beyond surfing, which, yeah, let's talk about that next chapter because you would have, like, Good Human Factory would have just been an idea when I first brought it to you before it was anything. So I don't know how I want to go with this question. Let's talk about that next period with me moving up to the Gold Coast and getting to work together closely. What did you see in what I was doing and did you expect it to turn into what it is today, the Good Human Factory? Well, I actually think you are the reason today why we have so many entrepreneurs surfers because you we have a benchmark of the good human factory to say if you have an idea go and do it because now we can say just look at cooper chapman (laughs) this is what he's created so i believe that you have given these other surfers i think of sophie fletcher designs the queen in me with india robinson callum robson high performance i know you've sort of got a good friendship with him they're all doing their own entrepreneurial thing. And I think they've drawn that inspiration in some way, whether they're aware of it, from seeing what you have done with the Good Human Factory, which is why in the space of surfing now we say if you have an idea, because I have a lot of athletes come to me and they're like, I have to go to uni and get a business degree. And it's like, do not can do I that. save you time? <laughs> What's your idea? Tell them to message me. I can give them. Yeah, well, I do do that and I talk about you and I've done lots of presentations where I've put you up. Um, We did it just recently with the, uh, we did an induction camp um, and I had the Good Human Factory up on um, on, on my presentation to say this is what you can be doing away from your sport because we often talk about transition, um, when we leave or is the root of the problem transition is the root of the problem the root of the problem is when the athlete enters the system and that's something you didn't have when you entered the system when you were 12 or 14 but so that's why now we talk about entrepreneurship we talk about having values we've had athletes have sponsorships where I had a female athlete that was sponsored once and the the sponsor wanted to wear, put her bikini up a bottom. And she just said to me, I've, you've taught me these values. I actually have to say no to this sponsor because I don't want to do that because that's not who I am. I know who you're talking about, what sponsor it is, and she's been on this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. So um, in the space that I'm working with at surfing, it's so diverse, but there's, I feel with the Good Human Factory came about this whole entrepreneurship with with surfers being inspired by that. So I think if there's a gratitude piece here today and if I put all those entrepreneurs in this room, I reckon they would have a connection with the Good Human Factory that inspired them to do their own businesses. Oh, I appreciate mm. you expecting that they might say that, but it's been massive to have you in my corner because 
there was definitely times and I remember coming to you where it's like, oh, I've got this idea. I'm going to go execute this. And it's like, yeah. you were always supportive. You were never bringing me down. You're always like, yeah, go for it. Like, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. How can we support you? Bringing me in to speak at Surfing Australia, which yeah. super grateful for. And then winning the award with Surfing Australia recently, yeah, the Greater Good so Award. Good. That was, um, yeah, really special. But we're getting close to the end. I'm, um, mm-hmm. very conscious of your time, but there is something coming up with Surfing Australia, which they've asked you and me to be able to maybe talk a bit about the seize the day um what's it called seize the day women's surf competition and festival launch which is very exciting it's going to be happening on the northern new south wales coast do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is yeah it's on um it's coming up in june on the 17th of 18th um it's basically going to be the biggest women's surf festival the aim is in the world Um, But it's not just about um, there's a competition in the water and it's for anybody. It's for people like me that can't perhaps stand up on a board now and can get a foamy and I can enter a competition. But it's actually a place where I can feel safe as a woman to go out and and try any type of surfing but to be part of a community. Mm. But there's also the festival component where out of the water We've got industry coming along um, where we're going to be creating opportunities and career opportunities for women that are in surf because surfing is, as you know, is not just about in the water. Um, Mm. It's about the community and culture out of the water and we want to um, amplify and promote women's surfing where they can come along for the day and really feel like they're in a really thriving community and they're part of that to try different things. Mm. We're going to um, have people like India Robinson and Sophie McCulloch there. We've got Lane Beachley. We've got Kate Wilkins, the high performance director. Um, We've got some longboarders coming along, um, some really inspirational um, women coming along to do talks. I'm going to be doing the values, which I can't wait to be able. I love giving people tools to take away. There's nothing worse when you listen to speakers and you're like, well, this is really motivating, but what can I actually take away from this? Um, And then we've got our next generation um, of surfers like Quincy Simmons and Coral Durant coming along, um, you know, to inspire the next generation. So um, it's going to be a really good event. And so we're encouraging. girls, um, even boys and men to come along to promote this because we need you as a voice mm. as well. But it's really to inspire and, and connect women with a community at this festival. I love that. It's such a this quite often people hear like, oh find your passion, try and find work in and it's like, oh, I don't know where to start. I think this festival, if you're somebody who loves the ocean, who loves being active and might be looking for that dose of inspiration to maybe step out of your comfort zone and find a new career path or find a new community of people. I think this is such an amazing event. I mean, I've got three sisters. Women are very important to me in my life. My younger sister, Sophia, is a little surfer herself. So, yeah, yeah, it sounds like it's going to be a major win of an event. How can people get involved if they want to come down? Um, Basically, you can just turn up, but there is a link on the Surfing Australia website where you can go on and um, register. I'll put it all in the show notes. So if you're listening right now, make sure you go to the show notes. Um, I'll leave a link to the Caesar Day event. You can, yeah, go check it out. So where is it? At Cabarita? No, Tweed Heads. Tweed Heads? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What about Tweed? What beach? Uh, it's gonna be a beach. I guess it'll be based on conditions. So yeah, Kingscliff. Sorry, Kingscliff. Kingscliff. Yeah, perfect. It's at Kingscliff. That's right. So yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Well, make sure you go click the link for that. Um, I think it's gonna be an amazing day. I'm actually gonna be just coming out from Europe, so I'm gonna have to miss it. Yeah. But. I know you guys are going to kill it. Surfing Australia does such an amazing job. They've really helped me with my career from obviously athlete life was a massive part of my life, but now the transition, I look back at my time at Surfing Australia and I truly think the most beneficial people, not only for my career, but my life was yourself, Jason Patchell, Deb, um, what's Deb's last name? Oh, Deb Savage Deb from Savage. Skate Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Deb's instrumental in my life. And it wasn't necessarily the things that I got out of it for my surf career, mm. Um, it's a bit selfish for me because I've got it out. The, the things that I really got out of it have helped me in my ongoing career. But, yeah, super grateful for you, the work you and the team at Surfing Australia mm-hmm. do, for not only me but the surf community. 
I do finish Good Humans podcast with the same question for every guest. I'm sure you've probably listened to a few of the guests. <laughs> so maybe you know what the question you're about to get asked. But what does being a good human mean to Michelle Mitchell? I think it's just how you show up every day for another human. Um, and I think the more that you tap into someone else, um, the better feeling you'll have about yourself. Bloody love that empathy, mm. just being empathy. there for others and yep. understanding how different we are. Well, thank you mm. so much for jumping on. Thank you for everything you've done in my career. Our friendship's amazing. My mm. Vitamix that you gifted me a few years <laughs> is still in the kitchen is amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, thanks so much for jumping on Good Humans uh, Podcast. Thank you, Cooper. It's been joy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 